0: I'm a sucker, I mean, I can't resist uh, what we might call near-miss stories. Here's what I mean by that. Let's think of 9-11. On 9-11, Michael Jackson, the, the pop star, the entertainer, was scheduled to be in the top floor of the World Trade Center for a meeting. He overslept because the night before he had been up for a long time talking to his mother and his sister on the phone, and because he overslept, he, he wasn't there. The actor, Mark Wahlberg was scheduled to be on the plane that left Boston, but changed his plans at the last minute so he and his family were not on that plane. The voice actor, Seth McFarlane, was scheduled to be on one of the planes, but was given the wrong boarding time by his agent, showed up after boarding had closed. He couldn't get on the plane, and because of those near misses, those kind of chance random events of life those more well-known names were not part of the horrific carnage on 9-11 but as compelling as could have been me stories are should have been me stories are far more compelling they are hero stories they are meant to be remembered they are meant to be rehearsed and shared Those are the kinds of stories that you hear coming from the battlefield where the actions of a soldier uh, spare the life of his buddy or his unit but end up resulting in his own death. These are the stories that you hear of families where a loved one puts themselves between another loved ones life and certain death and as a result they die themselves those are the kinds of stories that we want to make sure are never forgotten but the preeminent should have been me hero story is the story of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross it is a story that should not be merely reserved For the Easter season but instead it is the hero story that forms the basis of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the first place and we are in our build up to the Easter season spending really four weeks lingering over the work of Christ on the cross to prepare us for and build us up to Easter and we're doing that by looking Uh, taking an extended look, really, at a passage of Scripture familiar to many of us, Isaiah 53. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah 53, please, in your copy of God's Word? Alan Finley, our church planning resident, introduced this passage to us last week and dealt with the first few verses of of Isaiah 53. And and I just want to refer to one of the verses that he led us through last week, verse 3. As Isaiah is being given the privilege through the telescope of prophecy to see the work of Jesus 700 years in advance. He makes note of Jesus and says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So he he looks at Jesus, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, and uh, as, as he ponders that, it leads to the question, well, what did he have to be sorrowful about? What did he have to be grief-stricken about? And then with one single word, the word surely, uh, a, a realization begins to dawn on Isaiah, and he realizes this key fact about the sorrows and the grieving of Jesus. Verse 4, surely... He has borne our griefs, and He has carried our sorrows. He's awakening by God's stirring in His heart to the, the fact that the sorrows and the grief of this one that He is seeing in the future is the sorrow and the grief of His people Israel, of the entire world, of Him Himself. He is bearing our sorrows and our griefs And he says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Why would he be stricken, smitten, and afflicted? Because of my sorrow, because of the things that bring me grief. And this is where some dots begin to get connected for us. Those sorrows and the griefs that Isaiah is alluding to are the sorrows and the griefs that are produced by the human condition living the human condition living in a fallen world and most importantly being a sinner who precipitates all of that in the world of which we all are and for us sin is not really an outrage for us sin tends to be a misstep, or a mistake, or a moral boo-boo, for which we expect from others mercy, forgiveness, grace. Hey, don't come down too hard on me. I've just done this thing. I don't deserve your your rebuke. What, What I deserve is your compassion. That's how we view sin, as something that we immediately, without any kind of conditions at all, should offer forgiveness and mercy and grace to someone else. That's how we view sin. But he says, okay, he's bearing our sins, he is bearing our sorrows, he's bearing our griefs, and yet I I view his life as being stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Could it be that sin is a far bigger deal than what I have given it credit for being? Could it be that, that sin is such an outrage before God that it deserves a firm, holiness-driven response that would result In the death of this one whose life I'm seeing? And all of this is rolling around in his head. And he really begins to focus in on what all of that means in verse 5. He says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, and this is the realization, he's wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. There are two ways I want to approach verse 5. First I want us to think about verse 5 in terms of the description that Isaiah is prophetically given to the horror of Christ's death. There are some words that bring this out to us in verse 5. The first part of verse 5, we see the word wounded. Many of our English translations are going to translate that as the word pierced. And there's a reason for that. Frequently, that word in the Old Testament is used to communicate the idea of murdering someone, of killing someone, but frequently at the edge of a sword. So this is a a violent, blood-producing death that he is seeing in Jesus. The word crushed... Can mean in the Old Testament general opposition, but it can also reference the the crushing of a body causing death. Then we see the word chastisement carries with it the idea of physical punishment, of physical discipline. So this is a physical experience that that Christ is, is experiencing and not some metaphysical. Uh, thing taking place and then finally we see that it was by his stripes that we are healed in the uh, the Old Testament that word um, frequently communicates the idea of open battle wounds and so he is painting for us 700 years before it happened the horrific manner of the death of Jesus which is something that people of our theological ilk frankly love to run by quickly. I remember when we started our Good Friday tenebrae service years ago which by the way we will have uh, in person this year for the first time in 3 years. I remember the first time we did that and if you've been to that service you know we just kind of conclude just feeling the weight of the death of Jesus and the manner of it and just letting it sit there and the 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 almost uniform objection to that service that we got from people early on was, but Jesus Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive, and that's our impulse. Our impulse is to run quickly past the death of Jesus so we can get to the, the happiness and the celebration of Easter. But we could learn from our Catholic friends. Several... Weeks ago, or two weeks ago, I was, I was in Mexico and, I, and I, was, I was touring a cathedral. And in that cathedral, there were all of these various depictions of the suffering and the death of Christ. And, and what frequently uh, people like us, Protestants, want to do is to say to our Catholic friends, don't you know he rose again? To which our Catholic friends could say back to us, yes, but don't you know he died? Don't you know he suffered We run past that. We miss that. In our rush to get to Easter, we fail to feel the weight of the death of Jesus, the violence of the death of Jesus, the horror and abuse of the death of Jesus. When I see verse 5, I see that Isaiah, through his prophetic telescope, sees far out into the future a violent death by the Lord's servant. But there's another thing verse 5 does for us. It illustrates for us a very important theological concept. That theological concept, perhaps you've heard it, is the concept of penal substitutionary atonement. It is a, a concept which describes the essence of what Christ did on the cross. It does not describe for us the fullness of all of the work of Christ on the cross but it does describe its essence it in other words is the canvas upon which all of the other things that the cross represents is painted you cannot understand the cross without understanding penal substitutionary atonement and it is illustrated for us in verse five the word penal communicates the idea of appropriate judgment for a crime committed and so we see this he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities in other words it was because of what we had done that deserved judgment that he was the one being esteemed stricken smitten afflicted by God those words iniquities and transgressions are words which in the Old Testament communicate really the essence of what sin is the essence of sin please hear me on this this is important to grasp in just walking with jesus the essence of sin is rebellion if you could find one word that would describe sin the best word i think you could use is the word rebellion most of what we call sin and classify as sin are the effects of that rebellion in other words i lie because I'm a rebel. I do not honor the Lord with my body because I am a rebel. Rebellion is the essence of sin. And the words that Isaiah is using here are words which communicate the idea that we know the right thing to do. We know that God has the right to dictate what we should do. And knowing all of that, we choose to do our own thing. Again, this is drilling down into something that we can't forget, and that is the outrage of our sin before God. We just simply cannot run past that. I've said this before, but I think it's, it's worth saying again. We frequently view sin as something akin to accidentally throwing a ball through a neighbor's window. But what sin is, to get to kind of the idea of the difference it is from that inadvertent ball throw, sin is breaking the window, charging inside, and murdering the occupants. That starts to paint for us the difference between what we perceive as sin and what sin really is. And that is deserving of judgment. And Jesus took it on himself. Penal, and then the idea of substitution. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement, again, the idea of of physical punishment. And we get from the first part of that verse that he is experiencing our judgment. But he's communicating here that because he experienced our judgment, we got his relationship with God Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity he is the eternal God and as such Jesus enjoyed perfect fellowship with the eternal God as God throughout all of eternity but in substituting himself for us he not only pays our penalty he gives us what He's always had with God. He gives us peace, substitutionary, then the idea of atonement. With His stripes, we are healed. Through His wounds, through His bloody death, we are healed. All of the devastation wrought by our sin. Is paid for in the penal substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. And our nature at this point, having been given admittedly, admittedly bleak news to this point, is to latch onto that word healing and say, Yes, tell me more about that. Tell me more about what it means to, to have my relationship with God restored. Tell me more about what it is to live in the victory of the peace that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. But, it, but it's as if God whispers in Isaiah's ears, don't run and don't let anybody who reads your word run right by this yet. I want it to sit heavy. I want you to linger on it. I want people to not run by this. And so in verse 6, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, unless we misunderstand the word all, he interjects everyone to his own way. And he says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, one of the things that happens when you're taking a very old language like the language that serves as the backbone of the Old Testament and trying to bring it into modern English is that you can correctly translate a word but not sufficiently bring all of the color of that word from that ancient language and that happens with us with the word laid. The word laid here is an accurate translation. But we get the idea, don't we? I mean, it's easy. I've always gotten this idea until I was studying for this sermon. Of a kind of, okay, here you go, Jesus. A gentle laying upon Jesus our sin. But it really communicates this. It communicates a falling. Our sin fell on Jesus like an avalanche on the cross. Let's make sure we understand what all and everyone means. All of the sins of everyone who had ever lived or ever would live fell on Jesus at the cross. What Jesus experienced for us, heroic he stepped in as our substitute to take our place think of it this way any illustration is inadequate by nature of it being an illustration but think of it this way in creation God created gave us a plane that would take us anywhere that God would have us go for our flourishing and populated that plane with human beings like you and me. But remembering we started the sermon today with the specter of a hijacking, our adversary the devil hijacked that plane and took everyone on it hostage for the purpose of flying it into the throne of God to destroy his creation and to destroy God as king. But in the middle of all of that, one of the countless human beings on that plane stood up and said, my life for everyone else's. And that one who stood up was the sinless son of God. And Satan said, sure, that makes my job easier. And so he put himself as our representative on that plane. And Satan flew it into the throne of God. But instead of bringing about God's destruction and humanity and its destruction, it broke open the glory of God so that everyone would hear this hero story. And be made right with the Jesus who the story is about. What does this story tell us? Three very quick things. It tells us that Jesus died for sinners. Unless we gloss over or paper over what that means. It means that Jesus died for rebels who knew what God wanted and decided, I'll be my own God, and I will do my own thing. Jesus died for sinners. And in a human effort to kind of separate yourself from sinners because you're not that bad, you're better than others, this story reminds us that Jesus died for you. Because you, you are one of those rebel sinners. Unless you have figured out a way to make the word all, everyone, not include you, you and I are included. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for you. But this is very important. Remember that this tells us Jesus died for the world. Again, the word all and everyone. And here's why that's important. The word world has for us become a word which we essentially hiss. It is a word which we use to describe all of the people that we believe we have permission to hate. All of the people that we believe are opposed to us and our flourishing or opposed to the things of God. But we cannot read verses 4, 5, and 6 here without coming to the conclusion that Jesus also died for all of the people that we have given ourselves permission to hate. Jesus died for the sins of the politician whose name you use essentially as a swear word on your social media rants. Jesus died for the racist political talking head and the pro-abortion killing, or murdering, talking head that you can't stand to see or hear the voice of. Jesus died for every convicted sex offender in prisons today. Jesus died for every murderous dictator whose name you see in the news. Jesus had such a majestic substitutionary death that it is sufficient to cover the sin of literally anyone you could ever think about. The sins that you can think about which make you nauseous, your own sin that you refuse to get off the mat about that makes you nauseous. Christ's death is sufficient for. That's the majesty of the death of Christ. The question becomes is the sufficient death of Christ efficient for my salvation? Have I availed myself of what Christ has done for everybody to experience the salvation? that it makes possible as we think about that question is the sufficient death of sacrifice has it become efficient for my salvation it will land in the hearts of two different kinds of people it will land in the hearts of those who are here today the vast majority I pray of those who are here today who have come to a point in their life where they recognize they weren't people who just hadn't quite got it together, they were rebels before God. They were were treasonous rebels before a holy God and have knelt as surrendered, conquered rebels before the feet of King Jesus and said, I deserve everything you have to throw at me, but I know, and it's beyond my ability to comprehend, you threw all of that at Jesus. And so I embrace what you did on my behalf through Jesus Christ and receive the peace with God that it accomplished and commit to live for you as my king from this point forward. That happened for me 44 years ago last week. Many of you right now are remembering that moment when it happened for you. That's one group of people who are here today. People who are saying, yes, absolutely, the sufficient death of Christ has become efficient for my salvation. But there's another group of people here today who know all the stories and all the details. In fact, if pressed, you could have stood in my place today and told the hero story of the one who sacrificed himself for the judgment that you deserved. And yet, you still act as someone who can paper over the outrage of their sin with uh, you know, some good morals and some good citizenship. And while some of what you have done might have needed that, most of what you have done is sufficient to satisfy the outrage of sin before a holy God. And so you know all of the details, and you never miss a Sunday, and maybe you could even teach Sunday school, but you've never been a broken rebel before God who looks and gazes upon the sacrifice of Christ and says, that should have been me. That should have been me. And cried out to God. You didn't have to give me mercy, you gave me mercy. If you'll take this rebel back, and he always does, I'll live with you as my king from this point forward. That's what all of us have to do. We all have to come to that point where that kind of powerful life-altering before-after event happens. Not church, not baptism as an infant, a child, or as an adult not some kind of religious ceremony, not some kind of moral action. We have to do that. And the proof in the pudding is this. If that has happened, you will never be perfect, but we will be able to observe your life. You should be able to observe mine and say, that guy belongs to another. That woman belongs to another. And if you can point back to something but have no evidence in your life that other people say, yep, I see Jesus, then the Scripture's testimonies, that thing that you're trusting, never happened. It was like the seed cast on the ground, or in the shallow soil, or in the thistle. Someone who has really given themselves to King Jesus will not be perfect, but you'll be able to tell Jesus is in control. You won't be blameless, but you will be on an upward trajectory to live for Him. So has that happened? Has that life-altering moment happened for you? Let's think about that as we go to the Lord right now. Heads bowed and eyes closed.